Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescents, ours and theirs. I am so happy to have Tina Payne Bryson back on the podcast, mostly because I quote her every single day, shamelessly. I do credit her. You really do. I really do. do. Like, I really, really do. And also because she just has this way about being honest and real and funny while still giving incredible advice about dealing with the maddening and beautiful and wonderful experience of raising kids. In case you haven't heard of her and have been living under a rock somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Tina is world-renowned. She's the author of Bottom Line for Baby and co-author with Dan Siegel of the New York Times bestselling books, The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, The Yes Brain, The Power of Showing Up, which is my personal favorite. And she was on the podcast before giving us incredible insights and advice. She's back today to talk to us about dun, 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 consequences. Tina, we are so happy to have you back on the Puberty Podcast. I'm so honored to be back. I love talking to both of you. In fact, we always have a hard time even getting to the record part because we're just chatting and hanging out. <laughs> totally. So I'm, let's just keep hanging out, but with an audience in mind. We did have a 10-minute conversation before we press record. And I was like, okay, we have to press record because we're like using up all the good stuff, not the personal stuff about our families. You were thinking about consequences, Vanessa. Really? I was thinking about the consequences of yes. not... Pressing record. pressing record. So <laughs> Tina, we're going to start from the beginning with consequences because when we were growing up in the olden days with horse and carts and buggies <laughs> and dirt roads and two mile walks both ways to school, uphill. Uphill both ways. <laughs> we were punished. Like people talked about punishment. Nobody talked about consequences. Like, and also discipline. We were disciplined, but now discipline has sort of a different meaning. So can you explain to us this universe of punishment and consequences and discipline and how they intersect and how they're different and like what words we should no longer be using and what words are considered (laughs) great and good and and helpful. Well, I'll start with saying something kind of a little bit potentially provocative, which is that I think that most of what we do as parents in the name of discipline is counterproductive. 
I think that we are thinking about it completely sideways, especially when you understand how the brain works and the role of relationships in how the brain changes. So, you know, I grew up in kind of old school discipline. You know, I was spanked, all of that. And then, you know, I knew I didn't want to do that with my kids. But when I had kids, I was trying all the things like timeouts and, you know, all these different sort of ways that I had been raised or things that are kind of traditional, how a lot of people are are raised and, and even things that the other moms were talking about at the playground. I was also at the time studying interpersonal neurobiology and my dissertation was on child rearing, in fact, around this idea of what changes behavior. So I was studying all this, but I was finding that even what a lot of the literature said was quote unquote effective in the moment, totally lost sight of what I was even doing. So let me start with like a really big idea, which is the whole point and purpose of discipline. Like why do we even do it is so that our children become self-disciplined so that they do what they're supposed to do without me saying anything, doing anything, which means if you're an effective disciplinarian, you're actually disciplining less over time because what you're doing in response to misbehaviors does something that helps them behave better the next time. Now, when Dan and I wrote No Drama Discipline, we actually had a colleague of ours that we trust say, please don't use the word discipline in the title of your book because, and we were like, tell us more. And she said, well, people just associate it with punishment. People think it means, like when when your grandmother says to you and your child's, you know, crying and having a tantrum, that kid needs more discipline. What they What people typically mean is punishment. So Dan and I said, why don't we reclaim and try and cha- have cultural change around the original meaning of the word, which is to teach which means that every discipline moment is all about teaching. And I think where we really go wrong is we do things in reaction to our own internal state in the moment. We use our prefrontal cortex to come up with a reason. Like my kid hits his brother. I say, you know, go to your room and you know what? And then I make this up. I say, you clearly can't with people today. I'm taking away your play date. Okay, I just make this up. Now, when we do something like that, say my kid goes to his room and he's sitting in there and he's not reflecting like, wow, I really should be making changes and thinking about how I can better regulate my states of anger. (laughs) He's thinking about how mean his brother is to do this and how I love his brother more than him. And I never understand what's going on. And he actually takes zero accountability for behavior. And then in the next moment that his anger overwhelms him and he becomes dysregulated enough to hit, even though he knows he's not supposed to, he He is not really able to pause and say, hmm, I remember that last time I didn't get the play date. And so I'm going to actually stop myself from hitting. That's not how it works. So every decision I make when I'm trying to respond to a discipline moment is to ask myself, is the way I'm going to respond here going to make it more likely my child will do it better the next time or not? And if it's not, if I'm just throwing out a random consequence or I'm punishing, then I'm not doing anything to teach. I'm not doing anything that makes it more likely my kid's going to do things better the next time. And in fact, if my kid's in there thinking about how it's everybody else's fault but his own, that's actually counterproductive because he's not doing anything to take responsibility. So we need to rethink all of it. Okay, I have so much to say. One thing, I think I might have said this the last time you were on, but the worst example in my life of a random consequence that just proved this is not the right path was that time I took away reading. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because my kid loved reading and I just was so frustrated and didn't know what to do. And I'm like, then you can't read. And my husband looked at me like, okay, we really need to regroup. But what's so fascinating about what you're describing, I want to go back to the origin of the word discipline. Mm -hmm disciple, right? So it does have a negative context right now in our society, but really its root is incredibly strong and powerful. And when you said self-discipline is the goal, well, self-discipline has a very positive connotation, right? And so I think what I'm hearing from you, tell me if I'm wrong, is that consequences are it's the framing of discipline that helps them go from A to B so that they can replicate whatever lesson you're trying to teach them. It's sort of the notion of if you have a child who's 
really done something wrong, small or big, but they've done something and you want them to learn from it by helping hold up a mirror and showing them the consequences. That is a form of discipline that will hopefully lead to self-discipline in the future because they will eventually internalize that the A led to B or A could have led to B. Oh, you left the stove on when you were, you know, cooking your eggs and you just left the flame going and you could have burned down our house, you know, that kind of thing. What's interesting to me though, is that we talk so often on this podcast and we have spoken with you and you have written about brain development and the path through brain development and the ability to make consequential choices. And I'm I'm going to all of these words here. And if discipline comes from disciple, well, consequences and consequential thinking are very connected as well. And we know that most kids, tweens and teens, do not have the innate ability to think consequentially first. It takes their brains longer. So help us bridge these concepts here. Yeah. Okay. I love what you said. And now I have so much to say. (laughs) (laughs) The, The first thing I would say is that we make a big mistake and this is based on really outdated animal studies in the 50s, this whole behavioral kind of stuff that's really outdated now because we make the assumption that every misbehavior is a choice where they have sat and considered and pondered. And a lot of times, especially when we have a flooding of emotion, um, which happens a lot in the adolescent years, particularly when they're with friends, that when we have this surge of emotion or we are our nervous systems are in a more reactive kind of threat-based state, we actually can't access our prefrontal cortex or our left logical brain in the same way we can when we're regulated and our brains are fully done developing. So it's kind of interesting because we're in this weird, tricky position where it's like, you would never punish a child for something they couldn't do, right? Like when I talk to teachers, I'm like, would you ever, you know, move the clothespin to the red of part of the stoplight if you had a kid with dyslexia who wasn't reading as fast as the rest of the kids? Like teachers would never do that. But when it comes to behavior and emotional development, we do it all the time. We actually Mm. punish them for something they can't help. And yet it's a terrible idea to be like, oh, sweetie, your brain's just still developing. It's not your fault. You can do whatever you want to do. That's a terrible, terrible approach. Okay, so what we know is that They are not always making decisions. They're not pausing and thinking about all their options. They're not pausing and thinking about consequences. They're living in, uh, one of the speech and language therapists that works with me at my center calls it living in the now bubble. They live in the now bubble. They're not really (laughs) thinking about those things. I'm going to say something even more provocative here. And that is that I am not always (laughs) going to use consequences. And when I do use them, I'm going to do it in a different way than we typically do them. So here's how I even think about like, what do I do? How do I respond? And no drama discipline, we talk about the three discipline questions. So the first question is, why did my child do this? Like they clearly know this is not okay. So what was going on there? And I really, I think a huge part of discipline on our end is curiosity. So starting with curiosity, peeling back the layers to what was underneath that, oh, he was embarrassed or wow, his emotions got the best of him or whatever. And then I want us to ask the second question, what is the skill or what is the thing they need to be taught based on that? So let me give an example. Well, actually, why don't y'all give me an example of a teen tween misbehavior? And then let's walk through. I haven't gotten to the third question yet. Okay. I have so many flooding my brain. I I was not even going to say a word because Vanessa has like 12 at the ready. Go. (laughs) So I'm going to use a tiny one, which is like the rule in my house is you clean up after yourself in the kitchen. And yet this morning I came downstairs. My kid had beautifully made himself breakfast. (laughs) um, And yet there was a dirty glass of half drunk chocolate milk on the counter and a bottle of chocolate milk sweating down the sides of it on the counter. And my kid was sitting in the family room, hanging out on his phone. Mm -hmm. And like, I just saw red, right? I'm like, I was like, this is so disrespectful. I'm like doing 85 things for this kid. I'm so furious. Right. What a selfish jerk, right? (laughs) Like that's everything that went through my head. What should I have done? I'm not going to share what I, what I did do. Okay. But 
start Will with Will you like, reveal at the end, Vanessa? I may or may not, depending <laughs> on how embarrassed I feel by Tina's I'm going to give her cues of safety so she'll feel vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> share. Okay, so the first thing is you take that personally. And then we what happens is when our kids either are not doing what they're supposed to be doing or doing something they're not supposed to be doing, right? It fits into one, those two categories. It activates fear in us. Like, I think underneath that, you're so disrespectful. Like, you've got, you're feeling angry, but there's actually fear underneath that. And it's like, if my kid lives this way in the world, they're going to eventually just live in a van down by the river. They're never going to have a partner. They're never going to amount to anything. Like, so we have this fear that leads us to feel really reactive. Plus, it feels personal. Like, you clearly think that I have nothing to do. And like, my big thing is like when they take their food to their room and they leave their plate outside their door, I'm like, oh, oh I didn't realize. No that way. Had- I didn't oh, realize. No way. That's he's like, amazing. oh, I was going to get it. I was going to get it. That was to remind me to bring it back down next time I came out. And I'm like, okay. But it's like, I often am like, who do you think does this? If you don't do it, you're basically saying you do it. So, and they're like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. Right. So it's not personal. It feels personal. All right. So here we are going to walk through the three discipline questions. The first question is, why did my kid do this? Okay. So in that moment, your kid might be really stressed about something. Probably what happened was he got a text and was like, I want to respond to this and I want to send something funny. So it was probably more of an attention distraction thing. And he was like, I'll do it in a minute. And then it, took longer. So it was probably distraction or something like that, which we all do and understand. It might've been that he was really tired and and just feeling kind of lazy and whatever. So you kind of try and get clear on why do I think my kid did this? Then the next step is what is the skill they need to learn? Because I want to, instead of doing something to our kids, like now you can't use the kitchen forever. Now you can't read. Like one time it was the beginning of summer and I was like, you can't go swimming the whole rest of the summer, or you can't go to grandma's house even though I have a dentist appointment and I need you to go to, you know, like we all throw out these ridiculous consequences, but we really want to ask like, what is the skill? So maybe in this case, we'll just choose that it was probably a distraction thing that maybe the skill we want to think about is like paying attention to responsibilities and prioritizing what's important or something like that. Because I want to stop you there and just say, as you were framing this, the first thought that went through my mind is, well, isn't that excusing the behavior? But it's not. You're just framing the behavior, right? Just framing the behavior, right? And what if they say, Tina, yeah, 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 don't worry. I'll do it yeah. later. Every thank you note ever, right? Everything ever <laughs> in the last 20 years of parenting. So I'm just going to add two wrinkles, which you can choose to answer yeah. now or later, which is, do you allow them to, okay, do it later knowing that there's a really high chance that they're not going to do it later and you're only going to get more angry, but they're learning about that journey of putting stuff off? Or do you require them to take care of it now to prevent yourself from losing your mind with that kid? Like, where is the journey of autonomy versus sort of like setting clear parameters? And we'll we'll get get deeper in that. You get to decide. You're the grown up in charge. And I know that sometimes when I don't set a boundary early enough or I don't make a requirement early enough and my anger starts building, then I freak out. That's bad for everybody. So sometimes it's it's better to do that. So what you can say, and I love Ross Green's work. One of the phrases I learned from him that I use all the time is, hey, I know you know that stuff needs to be put away right now. So what's your, well, this is not Ross Green. This is me. What's your plan? Okay. So one of the things I want to be doing when I'm thinking about skill building. That should be your next book. (laughs) What's your plan? What's your plan? By the way, Tina, my kids now mock me when they're like, I don't even have to utter a word. I take a breath and look at them in a certain way. And they're like, are you going to ask me what my plan is for taking care of my stuff this weekend? But But I keep going. I'm not saying that because I don't agree with it. I'm just saying it because it's gotten into their heads in another way to examine the plan. Okay, so you're like... We ask that though. The reason we ask, what's your plan? And the reason also, and I I would love to talk about how I handle like bigger discipline issues, like bigger things too. Oh, I got good examples for that too. (laughs) Is that we really want to place part of the burden of figuring it out and solving it on them. Because every time they have to think about, they have to come up with a plan every time they have to, if you're like, 
what you did was a major violation. I have big concerns or even little things. How are you going to handle this? How are you going to make things right? How is this going to work? They have to use their prefrontal cortex. They're getting reps, repeated experiences. We're building their brain. But can I derail us for a second and ask, in the current mental health climate where a lot of kids are really struggling and where parents are really stressed about their kids struggling, how much of exactly what you just described, placing a little bit of the burden on them, how much of that is okay when you're worried about their mental health as opposed to when they're doing just fine and this yeah. is just, you know, capital A annoying? Well, I think it's it's a reflective conversation. I mean, it's a, it's a partnership. It's a conversation where you have to judge that at the moment. There might be days where you're like, I'm not even going to have this conversation with my kid because Here's another, we have like 16 conversations nested right now. I have to get back to the other thing, but I want to say this first, which is if the whole point and purpose of us doing any kind of discipline is for them to learn and build skills, then they have to be in a state of mind at that moment. There you go. Yeah. For them to be able to learn. The brain is either in a receptive state where it's ready to learn. Yeah. Or it's in a reactive state where it the really the learning circuitry is not on. They're really much more in a survive state. And so you have to judge that in the moment. And sometimes the moment itself is the worst time to do it. So that's that's really one of the discipline questions too, which is that third one is what is the most effective way to teach what I want them to learn? And that includes asking the questions, is my child ready to listen and learn right now? And am I regulated enough to teach effectively? Mm-hmm. So those mm-hmm. pieces are there too. I also think that when our kids have mental health challenges, and so many of them do, because we worry, we sometimes become overprotective and mm-hmm. we overbubble them. And we give them implicit messages of, I don't think you can handle this. So when we mm-hmm. say, hey, what's your plan? Or, hey, this didn't work very well. You know, do you have any ideas? You know, you come up with, you're a great problem solver. Well, how are you going to contribute to this conversation? then you, you're kind of giving them this implicit message like, I trust that you can handle things. Like you're strong enough to do that. Do you want a higher stakes example, Tina, besides sweaty yeah, chocolate sure. milk? Okay. Let me go back. Let me just wrap that one up, which is, so then you ask the question, how, what's the most effective way, the third question to teach this? And, and you were saying, do I make them do it right then or not? I think in that moment, you really can say, here's Ross Green's uh, phrase that I learned, which is, that works for you to wait, but it doesn't work for me. And we mm. need a solution that works for both of us. So how do you want to handle this? And usually they're like, fine, I'll just put it away. And that I'm way- I'm making that t-shirt. I want yeah, that t-shirt. It's, it's really <laughs> the idea of like, okay, we ha- here's our problem. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. Okay, well, do you have any idea? They come up with a stupid idea, an idea that works for them. But they're like, how about the idea that I never put anything away and you clean it up after me? That's their idea, right? Then you're like, that works for you, but that doesn't work for me. And here's the thing. As parents, we matter too. And them having to consider what we want, what we need, what our boundaries are, sets them up to be in relationship with partners and to live with other people. So you're going to hear me talk a lot in this conversation about emotional responsiveness, but do not mistake, listeners, this is a permissive approach. The research is clear, 70 plus years of research that we want to be high on nurture, emotional responsiveness, empathy, connection, but also very high on structures and limits and boundaries when we You cannot spoil kids by too much attention, too much love, too much emotional responsiveness, but where the quote unquote spoiled, and I don't love that word, can come into play is where we let them do whatever they want and where we don't make them consider others. Having boundaries and limits makes them feel safe. So anyway, in that scenario, it's fine for you to set a boundary and say, I really want it done right now. Do you mind getting up and doing it? Usually they're compliant unless they're in a really emotionally dysregulated state in which I would say the first thing you have to do is connect and get them regulated. Because when we connect with empathy and getting them regulated, it moves them from a reactive state into a receptive state where they're now ready to learn. So sometimes the very first thing in the process of discipline, even when they've done something bad or awful, is to connect and regulate, comfort, whatever it takes. Then they're ready to have that conversation. and into- Vanessa, We literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. 
We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Is there a phrase that you rely upon to help connect with them if they're not in that receptive state? Because the phrase I use which is, is everything okay? It's really not effective. I just assume that if they're not receptive, something must be wrong. And I go super broad and I generally get a blank stare and everything's fine and they're still not receptive. So yeah. do you have any tips on that one? I think we want to really honor unique differences. Our kids are all different. All three of my kids need something a little bit different in that moment. One of my kids needs space. Like if I go and try and connect and have a, you know, sweetie, you seem like you're having such a hard day. That does not work. So I usually just say something like, it seems like you're not quite yourself. It seems like something's going on. Anything I can do to help. And then usually this kid is like, no, I'm fine. 
In that case, I say, you know what? You know, I'm available. I'm going to be in the kitchen if you change your mind. And I'm going to come check on you in a little bit and just see if I could. And then one of the best ways to connect with those kinds of kids is through sensory kinds of things like a warm beverage, take them a snack, you know, send them a funny meme, like those kinds of things that are that are a little bit nurturing, but without going straight in. But typically what I do and what I advise is something empathetic and keep it general if we're talking about teens and tweens, because if you get too specific, they're like, you don't understand anything. But usually I'll just say something like, wow, it seems like you're having a hard day. Or, wow, what's going on? Are you okay? Like, you can do it, but the tone of voice matters. Um, just to That's say, right. wow, like, you seem stressed or you seem like you're having a hard time, something like that. And just making yourself available. So s- empathy is the hugest thing. And that can be done verbally, but it also can be just like rubbing a back for a second, you know, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I f- I sometimes feel like such a faker when I do that. Like, I'm always like, Oh God, here I go with my like empathetic murmurings again. But they don't care. It doesn't bother them. They're not seeing us as like false or disingenuous. Like, so if people are listening and thinking, oh, like, I don't know, that's not really me. It doesn't matter. It works. I swear to you, it works. Like just saying, oh, I'm so sorry that, I mean, Lisa Damore says that stinks. I say that sucks you do you and whatever language happens in your house. But like, yeah, I mean, it's so funny, Tina. I have one kid at my house who 80% of our communication are memes sent back and forth to each other via Instagram DM, depending on what the mood of the day is and his level of stress or happiness or whatever is going on. And it's like so, so, so effective because sometimes it gives him a chance to be like, Yes, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. Although I'm just going to chime in and say, I have a kid who sometimes when I send those memes or a text about whatever, I get a heart, which makes my day. And sometimes I get nothing, which decimates me. (laughs) And it's so interesting to see how reactive I am to just putting it out there. So I think it's important to recognize sort of our own emotional piece of the puzzle and how we fit into it and how the way they do or don't respond to us. It's all well and good for us to give all these examples of how it works when it works, but there are times when it doesn't work and it feels really bad. And personally, right. We can't. Otherwise, our our emotions are kind of held at the mercy of whether or not they are paying. They read your text that you know at that time or not. Hundred percent. One other phrase that I love. Um, one of my kids, he's almost never edgy in his tone of voice with me. He's just a really chill kid. We were packing for a trip he was going on, and he was just kind of sniffing at me. And I just paused and first grounded myself. You know, like okay be the parent you want to be in this moment. I say that mantra to myself, the parent you want to be in this moment. Because it's easy to be like, why are you talking to me like that? I'm helping you. Really? Like you pack yourself then, right? Stop being that's, such that's, an asshole. Yeah, exactly. You want to just kind of go at it, right? But I'm like, be the parent you want to be. And so I just, I, and he, this is unusual for him. So I kind of, you know, I was curious and I wanted to sit in curiosity. And I just, this phrase is so helpful. Even with one of my kids who's not super relational in terms of just connecting is to say, something seems like it's going on. Like something's, it seems like something's off. Like seems hmm. like is sort of like, I'm guessing, but you're the, you know, and I'm kind of waiting into, it seems like something's going on. What's, what's up? And then he was like, I'm really stressed. And he, you know, talked about, it. and I said, do you want to talk about it? And he was like, no. And I was like, okay, just I'll be in the kitchen if you change your mind. Mm. And then do you say to him, Tina, like, and by the way, like, I know it's not about me, but I don't appreciate it when you speak to me that way. Or do you just leave yeah. that be? So two two things to think about. The first is this kid rarely ever talks to me that way. So I know that came out of stress. And sometimes, and I do that sometimes, and I don't mean anything by it. So in this circumstance- I do that like 90% of the time. So if you only <laughs> do it sometimes, you're winning here. In this circumstance, I- let it go because when he's not stressed, he doesn't do that. And I'm not worried about that. That is not a skill I think he needs to build, right? I go back to teaching. Is this a skill my kid needs to build? 
No, he doesn't need to build. This was just an off moment. But I will say like, and I advise this for parents, even with really little kids, but it works especially well for teenagers is like, let's say your kids just verbally being abusive. They're just coming at you and they're saying mm-hmm. all, you know, they're just, you know, going at, and they can, oh, they just really know how to pinpoint the most painful, painful totally. things to say. And there's no exact one perfect response. So two ways you can go here. And I think it just depends on what feels right to you in the moment. One is to say, my kid is dysregulated right now. They are having an emotional storm. I'm not going to join the storm. I'm going to be the eye of the storm. And I'm going to just be like, wow, you seem like you're really, really angry right now, or you're having a really hard time. And I'm here with you while you're angry. I will listen. And you can just, and you get your kid regulated again with empathy and connection then when they're regulated again, they're ready to learn. So you're ready to teach and build skills is to say, when you talk to me that way, it's really disrespectful. It makes me angry. I feel really frustrated. And you can really talk about how it impacts you and say, it's totally fine to be angry, even angry at me, but it's not okay to talk to me that way. So I really want you to spend some time thinking about what can you do, which, and and you might even say with your kid, like, do you have any ideas, right? Get them to participating in what it is. And you might say something like, it's fine for you to say, I'm too angry to speak to you respectfully right now. So I'm going to button my mouth until I'm ready to do that. So you can give them even some phrases or some tools to use in that moment. The other thing you can do is to say, stop. I can see you're really angry right now, but I don't let anybody talk to me that way. And I really want to hear what you're saying and what you're saying is really important to me, but I'm not going to stay in a conversation where I'm being treated this way. So either you can shift how you're talking to me and we can continue the conversation or let's take a break until you're ready to do that. I think that's really a helpful approach too, because you're also setting an example for them not letting people treat them that way too. And you're respecting yourself. You have to stay calm though. You have to stay calm. Okay, so this is exactly where I was going to go. What if you choose either one of those two paths or, a, you know, a third, maybe less calm path? What if you choose the wrong path? What if you right. react in a way that as it's happening, you're just really regretting it? I mean, I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. And I know everyone has because we're human. That is such an important question. I'm so glad you took me there because the truth is we can mess up all the time and we will. And I think we talked about this in our other episode talking about the four S's, which is when we mess up, the literature shows that it's actually beneficial for our kids that we messed up as long as we make the repair. So, and the phrases I love to use, and you can hear it's going to roll off my tongue really easily because I've practiced saying them, (laughs) is to come back later once I'm regulated and grounded again and come back and say, even if your child is at fault, even if they were the ones. Now, here's how I would suggest not doing it. And I've done it this way too. If I say, I'm really sorry that I yelled at you and that I said those things, but if you had not been attacking me like that, that mm-hmm. wouldn't have happened. If I blame my child in my apology, what I'm teaching them is, you know what? Like, I want my kids to be responsible for their own behavior, no matter what mm-hmm. anybody else does, which means we have to model that because the yeah. two ways children learn, and we're talking about skill building and learning here is by what's modeled for them and by practicing doing it themselves. So what I'm going to say in that moment is I got really angry and I did not handle that the way I would have liked to have handled it. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And I might even ask for a do-over. I often even, so yes, just make the repair. And even if it's a week later and you're like, I'm still thinking about that. And I really wish I hadn't said what I said. I mean, sometimes, you know, parents confess to me some of the things, and I've certainly done this too, saying things that are really hurtful uh, Mm -hmm. to our children, you know, and especially when our kids throw hurtful zingers at us, it's easy to quit back with the same kinds of things. But I think it's so important that we stay as regulated as we can. We can talk about some strategies for how to do that. But if we don't, that's the time to go back and model how to make an apology. Tina, can you talk about, because we talk about this actually in our book based on conversations. I love, I adore your book. I can't stop talking about it. Thank you. I should say publicly, I should thank you publicly for reading, reading the book and blurbing the book. It is like the greatest honor of our lives to have your blurb on, on that book. So love it. Thank you. Love it, love it. I mean, we feel it anecdotally and the research supports that it's more in the repair than it is in having done something right the first time where the power of connection Absolutely. lives. Can you talk about why? I mean, it's 
phenomenal. And it's like my touchstone because I screw up all the time, but I've gotten (laughs) so good at the repair. Yeah. Why is that? Well, the first thing it does is it actually first tells our kids, I'm not perfect and I don't expect you to be, right? So if we were perfect all the time and they were human and messed up, they would feel really terrible about themselves. So we're actually helping their self-esteem by being jerks ourselves sometimes. Um, but the Great. Other thing, I'm really building good self-esteem then. Yes. <laughs> it builds what I would call relational resilience through conflict. So what, what I mean by that is if we have conflict with our child and then we go and make repair with them, what they come to experience, like the way resilience is built is by dealing with difficult things with enough support and coming through well on the other side, right? So we're giving them practice sitting in the messiness and discomfort of conflict that is inevitable in any relationship that is a real relationship, right? Where we're really ourselves. So our kids are like, wow, she was so mean there. Wow. She really like freaked out and lost it. I don't like how this feels. I'm so mad at her or whatever it is. And they're sitting in all those uncomfortable feelings that come with conflict. But when we repeatedly repair with them, maybe not perfectly, maybe not every time, the brain is a prediction machine. And so it comes to predict like this feels terrible, but even if they're not consciously thinking about it, they know because the brain predicts she's going to come make it right. So then what can happen is they can tolerate sitting in the messiness and discomfort of that without the fear of losing the relationship, without the fear of thinking like I'm going to be alone forever. And so then we come and make the repair I think when there are ruptures like that and we make the repair, it takes us to a place of intimacy with each other, a place of vulnerability. And usually when we have those conversations, we are being vulnerable. Like I didn't handle that well. And we're we're being vulnerable in a way with them that makes them feel close to us. So I think those are some of the pieces here. I'm surprising myself by asking you this question, but I want to ask what happens when there are two adults in the situation And one throws another adult under the bus Mm -hmm. and it's kid and adult against other adult. Let's say that's you who's the outlier adult. What does that repair look like? Because doesn't that repair require, whether like if it's me against, I'm going to use that word against one of my kids and my husband in terms of how we all see how something went down. If I'm in the wrong, I feel like the repair, I understand what that repair looks and feels like. But if everyone was in the wrong, I'm not even going to do the scenario where I'm right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I often think I'm right. But um, (laughs) I'm going to do the scenario where everyone's a little wrong. Yeah. And doesn't that repair require a little bit that your partner or the other adult in the scenario acknowledges the unkindness or the, the lack of empathy or whatever about how the kid has treated the outlier adult? And how do you get there with that other adult without negotiating it in front of the kid? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, hopefully the conversation is happening between you and your co-parent, your partner, whether you're married to them or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, this can happen among parents who are co-parenting and not together as well. That may happen. That scenario may happen. But ideally, the two grownups hash it out, right? And say, Mm -hmm. that felt terrible. It felt like you were triangulating or you, you know, you threw me under the bus and that made me like totally lose authority in my kid's eyes. And that was not cool. I didn't like that. Um, How can we keep from that happening in the future whatever? And you go and do that. And then, then really, ideally, the two of you together back with the kid, like the way I would probably now, and I'm making this up as I'm going along, I haven't thought about that question before, but I think what I would say is, let's say I was partly wrong too, but I was thrown under the bus. I would probably then after I've connected with my partner and say, that didn't feel good. I think we need to, we need to talk about that because our kids also don't want that. We don't want that modeled for our kids either in terms of how they do things. So I would say, look, that didn't go well, like throw it on the table. Like that whole scenario was bad in 16 ways. And I want to start by owning my part of this and like what I wish I had done differently and apologize for my part of this. And then you, you'd hope that your partner would just say, I threw mama under the bus there yeah. and it wasn't cool. I shouldn't have done that. She and I should have gotten on the same page first and come together. And I really wish I had handled that differently. Like that's what you're wanting your partner to say. And I think one lesson I've learned over time is that two on one is really an unfair fight in every direction. And so at least in my house, when something needs to be dealt with, if my kid had, you know, left the kitchen the way Vanessa's kid left the kitchen this morning and two of us 
went and said, you're so this and you're so that, that's a bullying situation. And to circle back to our theme of what's the consequence of how we're intervening, that consequence doesn't feel good to the kids. So, so often in my own home, what I've tried to do is avoid the two-on-one, including when I'm the one, (laughs) you know, it's easier when it's one-on-one. Ina, I want to go to a more serious okay, yeah. infraction. Yeah, you and promise. And I want to sure we get back to the whole idea of whether or not we even use consequences. For this one, you do. Okay. But I don't know no, go ahead. Go how ahead. to gauge. So let's say theoretically, sometime in the last several years, one of us might have had a child who threw a party in violation of 800 different household rules. And there was damage to the house in addition to damage the relationship. How does one walk through? And this could be a kid who you found out, you know, vaping after you explicitly told them not to, or a kid who used your credit card and charged lots of money to it against explicit rules. Like it could be anything. A big broken rule. A big broken rule. A big broken rule. Like they were drinking when they weren't, you know, that kind of stuff. Safe, real safety consequences in the larger world. Where does one begin to figure out what the consequences are to that? And then we'll wrap with when we shouldn't do consequences at all. Well, the first thing I would say is that besides what's happening in the discipline moment, we are also creating repeated experiences for the relationship, for how we handle this. So again, with the idea that the brain's a prediction machine, when we freak out, which we inevitably will, especially if it's big stuff, it actually makes our kid less likely to come to us. It's more likely they'll hide stuff from us. Like, And it's not just about this. It's about even little things. Like when we freak out, their nervous system goes, that was terrible. I don't want to do that again. So it, make it makes it less likely that the relationship that they're going to be relational in the future around these things. And they're going to hide things from us and not come to us when the stakes are high. So, and I've been in this situation, a similar one to what you're describing. And I'll tell you how I handled it because I feel good about how I've handled it. I have a lot of situations that I didn't feel good about. So it's, those aren't as helpful because everyone knows how to do bad things. <laughs> so um, the first thing I did was, and I, for my child's protection, I won't go into the details, but it was similar, big safety, big violation kinds of things. The first thing I did was my husband and I talked, tried to get on the same page. And the first thing I had to make sure was that I wasn't going to freak out. If I start screaming and yelling, we're not going to get anywhere. I'm not going to do any kind of teaching or discipling. So I say to my child, I really need to think about how I want to respond to this. Hmm. I'm not ready to have this conversation with you yet. That's what Vanessa did. Good which job. was a, Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I had you on the podcast, Tina, and I, I by osmosis, absorbed some of your wisdom to handle that <laughs> It was that very well played. Let's see if you got the next step wait. right, Vanessa. So you wait, and you that gives you Probably time not. to regulate it and really get back to these principles of like, okay, my child, why did they do that? Okay, impulse control. There are teenagers that are seeking dopamine. Their dopamine levels are low anyway in adolescence, so they want bigger dopamine hits, so they do more risk-taking. Like, I understand that about the brain. It's still not okay. We don't excuse that. So I really want to hold in mind, what is it I want to happen here? What is the skill I want them to learn? And all of these things is to find healthy ways to get those dopamine. So in the moment, then when it's time to have the conversation, um, what I did is to say, I'm going to let you start and I'm quiet. And I let them start because they're having to hold the discomfort of having to, first of all, wait and have the conversation, then they're having to say, like, I don't even know what they're thinking or where they're going with this. So now I have to cop to stuff or whatever. And you're really, that's a really helpful step because it gives you a lot of information about where they are. If they start with like blaming other people or whatever, then we might come in and say, okay, so even if there were other people at fault, I'll accept that right now, but I want to hear about your part in what happened. And we're bringing them back to accountability all of these things. Now, one of the most helpful things is to allow them to feel guilt. Now, this is going to sound weird. It's going to sound really weird. Oh, I'm dying to hear this. Okay. So let me just distinguish between shame and guilt. Shame is like, you're a horrible person. You're a broken person. Like we know that shaming our children is terrible for mental health outcomes in adulthood. If we do it chronically. Okay. I'm sure we've all shamed our kids from time to time. Don't worry that that sets your child up for mental health 
health disorders, but I will say that it's chronic shaming is really bad. Healthy guilt is where your conscience is like, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. And you all know that feeling, that feeling of guilt. It's a terrible feeling. The nervous system is programmed to avoid what feels terrible. The reason we have this like guilt and this feeling of, of like, ooh, I shouldn't have done that is an old, old system in our nervous systems because back in the old days, like way before our horse and buggies, but like back in the caveman days. No wheels. Got, no <laughs> wheels. If you got kicked out of your tribe, you were more likely to be eaten and not survive. So a survival piece here is to be part of the group, part of the tribe. So we have these feelings of guilt and self-consciousness mm. to make it less likely we continue to violate the mores of the group. So that you violated a more, you feel really terrible, that feels really bad, you don't do it again. Sometimes when we just immediately throw out a consequence or we overreact, we skip that step for them. We don't mm. allow them to feel the guilt and then they don't have that clong feeling. And that's the most powerful teacher is that feeling of guilt. So what I might do is let them start, let them start talking. And hopefully you hear a little bit of remorse in the voice or you see the head be like, yeah, I sh I'm sorry. And the they say, I'm sorry. The head drops just a little bit. You're watching for that moment. And then you're going to bring attention to that because where attention goes, the brain fires and wires. So I might say in that moment, I can see that you feel bad about what happened to the house, or I can see that you feel bad that it turned out this way or that you disappointed us. And I would then be quiet and pause and let them sit in that feeling, let them respond to that feeling. Because what we're doing is we're giving the prefrontal cortex reps and having to figure out what do I say next? Do, what do they know? What do they not know? And then we're letting them feel that guilt. And then one of the best things we can do that also builds relationship and makes them feel connected and, and really close to you is to say, you know, one of the best things about love and about this family is that we're all going to mess up. And this was a huge effing mess up. This was a huge one. And you cannot lose our love. You can make things right with us. So what are your ideas for how to make things right? And you let them come up with the consequences. And oftentimes they're going to be worse than what you would even come up with. Totally. Totally. Yeah. totally. <laughs> but you're, you're partnering with them. It makes them more accountable. It makes them sit in the real relational consequence of what happened. You're trusting them to say like, I know you come up with good ideas. I know you're going to figure out how to make things right. And if they come up with something dumb or too small, say, that will work for you, but that won't work for me. What else have you got? And we're really partnering in this conversation to say, this is what happened. I know you, and the phrase I use all the time is, I know you know that's not okay. So what the hell happened there? And make them kind of become curious about their own behavior. We're really making them have to use their brain and participate relationally in what's happening. I mean, this stuff about guilt and the importance of guilt is so fascinating. I'm like, my mind is completely blown, Tina. What about the kids who take a while to recognize, to feel the remorse, like their sort of, their shame or their anger or their sense of injustice sort of prevents, it's like a delayed guilt or remorse. And they can take a really long time. They can take long I mean. time. Here's, here's why it's important to be patient. And obviously at some point, if they're just stalling, then you need to say, you know what? We need to have this conversation now because I want to move past it. And I'm still feeling some anger about that. And I don't want to live in relationship with you like that. But it's important that we wait because like, I think about a time, like my five-year-old hit his eight-year-old brother and it's like, he's furious in the moment, Ugh, totally dysregulated. So my first thing is to get him calm. Sweetie, you're so angry. What happened? What do you need? How can I help? Calming him down. Then to pull up the guilt thing and say, I know, you know, you really hurt your brother. If in the moment, if we force them to make repair, to feel guilt, they won't do it. Because here's the thing that's so fascinating. Our prefrontal cortex gives rise to empathy. So when we feel like we have been unjustly treated, which they feel even when they're wrong, but we're yelling at them, right? Mm -hmm. They feel like that's mm -hmm. an unjust, unfair, and you're, something's wrong with you because that's just immature brain development. They'll get better at that. If they feel wronged, if they are really angry, they can't even access empathy. Like I remember one time in a fight with my husband, he was like, it's like, you don't even care how I feel. And I was like, I don't care how you feel right now. I'm so mad. And I know I just can't, you can't get to empathy. So when we are like, go tell your brother, you're sorry. 
or you need to you need to come up with a list of how you're going to make this right. If they are not in that more regulated place, they can't even access the part of the brain that thinks about or is even able to conceptualize how this impacted you, how it impacted the relationship, how it impacted the house. They don't care at that moment. So oh they were like, oh my God, my child's a sociopath. But it's really that that part of their brain is offline. So we need to be patient and wait for them to get there. They might need more prompts. They might need to say, in 24 hours, we need to have this conversation. So I, I need you to move into my house. <laughs> it's so helpful because what you have done and what you do and everything that you write, but I mean, just so beautifully, what you've done over the course of this podcast is you've humanized the experiences we all go through and it doesn't feel so scary. Yeah, it just doesn't you. feel so scary. Well, I think you. What, one of the ways I really try to think about things is that the relationship is on the front burner and whatever the hell happened is back burner. It's always still about the relationship. So, and I think for me, it's so important that we think through this lens, like it's all about teaching and skill building to make it more likely they'll do better the next time. Right. So for example, like I'll give an eighth grader example, my eighth grade, and I have permission to tell the story. I tell it um, when I speak sometimes. So on a Sunday night, actually, when I was finishing the manuscript for No Drama Discipline, I was really stressed out. I have three children, and I'm also caring for my four-year-old twin niece and nephew at the time. My husband and father-in-law were supposed to be helping with all the kids so I could finish my book. My father-in-law had to have emergency surgery, so they were at the hospital. So I had five kids. It's Sunday night at like 6 p.m., and my eighth grader says to me, hey, mom, can you take me to Michael's craft store? Now, y'all, he's not a crafter. He's not going to buy some pipe cleaners to create something. He has a project due Monday morning, the next morning, right? And it's a 3D model of a cell. And the one and only thing I've been absolutely militant about in my home, I guess I should say two things. One is about respecting each other, but the other thing is sleep. So I say to my eighth grader, bedtime is still at nine o'clock. It's six o'clock now. I am not going to be helping you. I did not designate time tonight to help you, but I will take you to Michael's and you'll have to see how, how you can pull it off but bedtime is still at nine. So I'm still holding my boundary. And he starts freaking out. And I go, I know this is really stressful. When you wait until the last minute, it's really stressful. So I can still be empathetic about his experience of what's going on. So I take him to Michael's. He ends up putting together a really crappy project. He ends up getting a D on it. So this is what we call a natural consequence. So let's be really clear. Natural consequences are things that happen without having anything to do with you. You leave your bike outside, it gets stolen. The bike is gone. Like you're not saying I'm now taking away your bike. If your kid leaves their bike outside and you're like, I'm taking away the bike for a week, that's called a logical consequence. But a natural consequence is where the bike gets stolen and had nothing to do with you. So he has a natural consequence of getting a D. And when he comes home, he's disappointed. And I can still be really empathetic. That's so disappointing. I'm sure you wanted a better grade. So I can still be empathetic. He's now gotten like a rep, a repeated experience, like his like lifting weights. My muscles get stronger. Same thing with here. He gets a rep of well, it didn't work to wait until the last minute. So I'm furious though. I'm yelling at him. I'm like, you're so disrespectful of my time. You waited until the last minute. You played football with your buddies all weekend. And then I'm like, when did you know about this project? He's like, well, two weeks ago, but we just got the final information on Friday. So now he's lying on top of it. He's totally oh, lying on top of it. So now I'm really mad about that. So I'm yelling, yelling, yelling. A few days later, I'm working on my manuscript. I'm reading again, my words that I wrote about how it's all about skill building. And I go, oh my God, Tina. Huge principle, behavior is communication. The behaviors our kids are doing is loud and clear, making our list of the skills they don't yet have. Behavior communicates what they don't have a good strategy for, what skills they don't yet have, where they are in development. So I instead, so basically my kid's behavior was saying, hey mom, you know all those executive function skills that I don't have yet because I'm an eighth grade boy, I don't have those. I didn't plan ahead. I didn't think about my materials. I didn't think about your time. I use delayed gratification because I want to be with my friends. I don't care about school. All of those things are communicated to me. So instead of doing something to him, like now you're on, you can't go out next week and next week and you're staying home and you're studying. Instead of throwing out a logical consequence, instead of doing something to him, that's not going to help him build any skills for executive function to prevent this in the future. I'm going to do something for him because my job as a disciplinarian is to build skills so that he has the ability to be self-disciplined about this in the future. Now, part one, I know part of that is brain development and executive function takes a long time. So I'm going to wait. I have to trust development, but I'm not going to just wait. 
I'm also going to give him repeated experiences to build his brain to build executive function. So what I need to do as the disciplinarian, I didn't give him a consequence because he already got a natural one. And if I take away his friend time next weekend, that's not going to help him have better executive function. That's stupid. It's actually counterproductive because now he's going to be like, she's so stupid. She doesn't, you know what I mean? It's not going to help me. So what I do instead is every Friday when he comes home, we get out the planner and I'm like, weird, the planner's blank again. That's so weird. Your teachers didn't get <laughs> any assignments this week. And I use a lot of playfulness and humor. I literally would say that to my kid because then instead of saying, you need to fill this out and create reactivity, I'm like, that's so weird. Your teachers are really slacking on the job here. We got to do the work for them, I guess. Let's go on the website. Let's fill it out. So before we even get to the homework, he's got to fill out the planner. And after doing that week after week after week, he's going to have an experience where he's like, it's not worth it to not fill it out all week. So it changes his behavior. He starts getting the planner done. And then we have a conversation where I say, what's coming up? When is it due? How much time is that going to take you? What materials do you need? And I start giving him repeated experiences to build those skills. So in this case, I didn't give a consequence because it didn't make sense to. It was more effective to do something in my job as helping him build skills. I mean, it's so fascinating. There are examples and examples and examples and the stakes get higher, right? So a D in, uh, you know, eighth grade science is very different than some other much more serious consequences. But when there is a natural consequence, right? A disciplinary action from a school, being cut from a team for certain behaviors, missing out on a theater performance because of a bad decision. That debate about how do we handle it from a disciplinary perspective as a parent is really, really complicated. And I love the idea of putting the relationship first, presenting with empathy. Even if you are so goddamn disappointed in your kid, even if you are wondering who you raised, if your parenting has been wrong in every possible way, because you're like, I cannot imagine that my kid would ever do this thing. And yet they have. So it's really, really, really fascinating to think about when there's natural consequences that we don't actually need to do anything except sit there with our kid in that consequence. And the way that we do consequences matters. Like, let's say my kid's on his phone instead of doing his homework. Instead of being like, I'm taking your phone away, you can't have your phone for a week. It's so much better to go into the room and say, and this is a consequence to say, I can see, because I'm working from a teaching skill building perspective to yeah. say to my kid, and this helps me, I'm saying it out loud for myself too. I can see that it's too tempting to have your phone with you when you're doing your homework. So I'm going to hold on to your phone during homework times until you have that skill, right? So it's also, that's a res- much more respectful way to do it as opposed to like power and control. So I just really think that if we give consequences, we really want to think about, is it really toward the goal of helping them build this skill so this behavior is less likely over time. It's a radical idea, but if we can really hold teaching and skill building in mind, keeping ourselves regulated, getting our kids regulated so everybody's ready to be an effective teacher and an effective learner, just those ideas can be absolutely transformative. And I'll say this is one of the things I really hold on to, and this also harkens back to our Power of Showing Up episode that we did together, is that we can say no to a behavior while still saying yes to our child and yes to the relationship and yes to connection. Like if you set a boundary, you're like, you can't go. You can't go to the movie that all your other friends are going to because it's not appropriate for kids your age. And I'm no, I'm the only parent saying that. And I know you're furious with me, right? So the kid's mad. You're you're the worst. You're so, you know, you're you're so freaked out about everything, whatever. They come at you is to just say, I know it's really hard to be feeling like you're left out and it's okay to be mad at me. I'm right here while you're angry. So we can even hold the boundary and say no to a behavior even while still connecting with our child. Oh, Tina, I just love (laughs) you so much. (laughs) I love you too. (laughs) Um, It's so nice. It's like, it's so funny how doing this work creates this incredible connection to other adults too. It's like, as we learn how to connect with kids better and how to better be there for kids, there's this incredible privilege of getting to connect with adults and learn from each other and 
support each other and encourage each other. And it's like this beautiful added layer to what I get to do. And I'm just so grateful for it. And I'm so grateful you are in the world teaching us all because Thank you. you're making us better human beings. Oh, honestly, well, I feel that way about you and Kara as well. I'm so grateful to be in collaboration with such amazing people. Can I say just one more thing? Of course. I've talked a lot about discipline mistakes. And actually on my Instagram, I did, um, it's back in my feed. I did 20 discipline mistakes we make all the time. And I did one every Monday for 20 weeks. So you people can go back. I and, remember and those. Every single one of them. Yeah. One of the other big ones that we haven't talked about is power and control. We often, because we're afraid and because we can't get our kids to do what we want them to do or whatever, instead of partnering with them, we go the power and control route and it will never end up well. Unless you like, let's say you say to your kid, like, you can't go out with your friends tonight. And they're like, well, I'm going. And you're like, no, you can't leave. They're like, I'm leaving. Like I, my children are six feet, like I'm five, four at some point, if they decide that they are not going to do what you say, they will, unless you're willing to call law enforcement, you're going to lose. And so then it really undermines your authority. So really think about discipline is not about power and control. It's about teaching. And the way we do that most effectively is in relationship. And so one of my goals and purposes for my life's work is to change how we see kids' behaviors and how we respond to them. And so much of what is in the literature and so much of, you know, I mean, all this stuff about structure and nurture, all that stuff's in the literature and well-supported. But I will say lots of mental health therapists and parents and teachers and just people in the world are still really stuck in outdated ways of thinking about you just have to teach them who's boss, you know, and, and you got to make them afraid of you. And, um, and it's all about punishment when you really understand the brain and you understand like all these things we're talking about are all brain building ways that also build relationship and it elicits cooperation and compliance as well. It's effective. I'm all about what works. If, if this was just like, Oh, warm fuzzy, this just feels good to have a reflective dialogue with my kid. No, it's effective. It works. And so anyway, I think that's just really helpful to hold in mind as well. Thank you so much. We are so grateful to have you on. And like, of course, you need to come back again because Always. it's not the puberty podcast without <laughs> Tina. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thanks for having me. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products, like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. 